Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. Indie Game Business is recorded live on Mixer and produced by the Powell Group. Check us out at IndieGame.Business. Now, let's start the show with your hosts, Jay Powell and me, Indie. Sign up today for the Indie Game Business newsletter. It's a weekly source of business news curated for indie dev teams. We've got discounts on all Indie Game Business events and events from all of our partners. You get a first look at the summaries and takeaways from all of our podcasts. There's exclusive opportunities for promotions and early access to new tools for development, monetization, and more. Check it out. Sign up. PowellGroupConsulting.com slash publisher dash list. What's up, everybody? My name's Indy, and that gentleman way over there in the middle, that is Jay. And this is the Indie Game Business Show. And in the middle, we have Emre. How do you say your last name? Dennis. Dennis. Okay. Well, that's easy. People ask me, like, they're like, because my last name's Long, right? And they go, how do you spell that? And I want to go L-O-N-G. Yes. Yeah, it's L-O-N-G. The, the best thing is my wife's name is Rochelle, right? And it's R-A-C-H-E-L-L-E. And nine out of ten people call her Rachel. Like, do you not know how Rachel is spelled? Yeah, no, I can see that. I can see that. That's, That's the reason I asked when we first started talking. is like, how do you pronounce your name? Because I have a tendency to, like, overthink names you know it's the same because when you deal with people all across the world and you've got different pronunciations and different you know dialects and nuances it's like i i'll take the simple name like long and be like is it lung is it uh, without thinking <laughs> right it's probably just like the simplest answer here so Anyway, Emory, uh, thank you so much for you know coming on the show, especially since it's four a.m. Four a.m. Crazy, yeah, so, yeah, four a.m. in New Zealand. We're we're gonna try to keep everything nice and concise so you can actually you know get a little bit of sleep before you have to get up and start going again. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that. It's um, we take it pretty easy where I work, so I can probably rock up pretty sleepy for the rest all day. Probably just rock in there at 6 a.m. No big deal, right? Well, I mean, I had big plans <laughs> yeah. for my day today, but then the Steam Summer Sale started yesterday. And what? Well, I didn't even know. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Steam Summer Sale's in effect. I've already bought, I've already spent about 50 bucks, you know, and it's, it's noon here my time. So, um, so Emory, I, I reached out to you initially because you had a, you know, as you said, a brief moment of vulnerability and a wonderful Twitter thread back at the end of May on how you got into the industry and, and your journey and the challenges and all of that stuff that comes up. And yeah. it's one of those things that you don't see very often. People don't talk about it. People, you know, the things that are difficult in the industry that need to be that need to get out there and people need to talk about it. they don't they don't talk about it you know and so you know that was one of the reasons i wanted to have you on was you know to explain that journey and and you know we're going to talk about perseverance and and how you go about doing a lot of the things even on the basic level about setting up companies and and how you decided to go to new zealand and all that kind of good stuff but let's start with how did you get started in the industry and walk us through your career and even that seven year pre-career <laughs> episode? Because that's the interesting part. You know, most people work at something for seven years and if it doesn't work out, they're like, okay, I'm done. You know, but, yeah, of course. So, so let's start there. Walk us through that part. Well, um, I think the backstory there is that, um, so I was studying in university in, I think uh, it was game design, were the first cohort, um, uh, no, second cohort. So the year before me um, was, for example, a student called Alexander Bruce who made Antichamber. So this is like how far back we're going now. Um, basically, second year, um, 
global financial crisis hit. So all of the AA and AAA studios in Australia got shut down pretty much like within a month of each other. And I remember a, a, a lecturer kind of walked in and said, like, that's it, folks. Um, you might as well just pack your stuff up, go across the road to the trade school instead. Like, that's if you ever want to make any money um, or, like, you know, have a living, you're done for games. Like, there's no, there was no indie market back then or anything like that. Um, it was just kind of like you either go to work at the studios um, or, or that's it. There was no Unity. There was no, well, I think Unity had just like launched. Unreal was still, um, you had to pay, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for licensing it. Um, or you could just mess around in UDK. Uh, yeah. And then I, I dropped out of uni. I basically just said, all right, well, that's the end of that. Um, I'm going to go find some work. And I ended up becoming a nightclub bouncer. Um, and I did that for a long time, like six, seven years, I think. I was, uh, um, bouncing between that and I worked as a armed security guard, like cash and transit work. So, um, had a very, uh, a very kind of interesting entry into, into making video games, but, um, definitely like always kept that as a, as a goal or where I wanted to go. Um, and obviously, you know, I, I lived on the sidelines of the whole resurgence of, of the indie scene. Um, or like our local economy as well here. Uh, and then I think six years ago now, um, I started work as a 2D artist, like a concept artist at a part-time or like contract work. Um, and then, yeah, 2017 had my own kind of subsidiary studio from a parent company. And now we're in 2019. Um, and yeah, we run a game studio uh, out of Wellington, New Zealand. Um, we got 14, 15 people on staff. Um, yeah, we're making a two-year-long RPG adventure game. Things are good. And that's a, a very brief overview of how an art club bouncer becomes um, a, a studio director. I don't think that's actually any more unusual than <laughs> <laughs> routes that we see getting into the we used to put I, I told somebody this earlier on a podcast when we were transitioning our agency about 12 or 15 years ago into a publisher the um we didn't have producers we had like one or two of us that knew enough about you know games to produce but we would literally go down to gamestop and hire the retail staff to be testers as a test case and yeah. then immediately bump them up to producer. So, you know, within like six weeks, you'd have somebody going from running the register at GameStop to producing casual games. And it's just one of those things. It's like, there's not a normal route into how you do this. And so we're always interested. It's always fun to hear you know how people got there because it's how not people got yeah there. i was yeah. a bouncer in a biker bar there for a little bit i just want to say um in chat here how's it going divinorum thank you so much for showing up and whitlock thank you for the awesome raid with a party of 21 that's amazing nice thank you very much thank you ah cool and welcome to indie game business <laughs> so in the course of of, of you know be, being a bouncer and an armed security guard you know you mentioned you have high points, you have low points, yeah. You know, you, but you still had the passion to get into the industry and be doing this. What did you do? You know, when you hit that that bottom valley, and then like this is pointless, or you know, I just don't. This isn't what I want to do. How did you get your talk yourself into keep going? You know, what did you do to bring yourself back up at that point? It's a good question, right? Like, um. Because there's a lot of stuff in that thread that I left out because I always, I really want to kind of kill that line of advice that people do about, you know, if I did it, everyone else can do it kind of a, kind of a thing. Because um, there was a lot of times when I was just like, you know, I'm barely making ends meet. Um, I'm barely making rent. And, you know, anyone who's worked in, in, especially bouncing will know that like, it takes a big toll on you. Like you're working... Yeah. 10 hours a night um you don't see that much sunlight i've seen more sunsets and sunrises on the opposite like on the opposite kind of order um than i would like in in one lifetime um 
But I think what kind of keeps us all there um, or trying and continually kind of working away at these things is knowing that um, that's like, that's a tangible goal. Like it didn't matter what game I was working on, whatever jobs I could find that were even tangential or close enough to games. Um, I was, I was always trying to just like, you know, take it. Um, so I remember like I was doing, uh, art assets for like flash game people, uh, that I'd met on new grounds. Um, I was trying to like, uh, teach myself unity. Um, but you know, it's really hard to learn a whole new skill set when, uh, you're coming home really, really like tired every day. Um, I think that the best thing that, um, the best description I have is that every night you go to sleep and if you're staring into the more of like being displeased at the, the trajectory of where your life is heading, um, that means that you still have work to do. Like it's not until you find yourself being quite content that you've either accepted the fact that you're, you're going to leave and you're not you know, ch- going to chase your dreams or that you know that you're there, you're, you're the, the, the base of that big mountain and you're going to summit that thing. Um, getting to that mountain or getting to that, that start of that journey was challenging enough. Um, I think that in itself is like a huge target for a lot of people. Like a lot of people just want to get their foot in the door just so that they can get the chance to work hard. Um, it's, uh, yeah. So like, I don't think it ever crossed my mind to like not do that. Um, I don't think that there was ever a time where I thought, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do security instead, or I'm going to do something different instead. It was always kind of like one day I'll get into games. Um, I just got to figure out how I'm going to do it and then just try different vectors until someone, someone let me in basically. And so now, now I've got like five more questions. So <laughs> you, you mentioned, you know, the, the taking those tangential jobs and, and, and a lot of the folks that have that mentality of, I have to get in the industry no matter what. How do you feel that that relates to, you know, the current problem we have with turnover in the industry? Is it, yeah. you know, because these companies like Activision, Telltale, and EA, and, and they have no problems firing 200 people because they know there's another 600 that are waiting to do the job, most likely cheaper. You know, one of the things that we tell developers is you have to when you're looking at some of these jobs and it's like, they're going to pay you minimum wage, sometimes less than minimum wage to do it. You have to have enough respect for yourself to not take a job that's going to be toxic for you basically. So how do you, you know, feel about the, the yin and the yang of that? And, and, you know, where, where, what's that line basically? I think, um, the line for me now, it basically, like, it basically sits at trying to make sure that the ladder that I got up is different for people coming in now. So, like, we've got a couple of juniors, more than a couple. I think we've got like at least four people who are this is their first job in the industry, um, and we've made sure to have a lot of things in in the way that we operate our company um, that we would have liked when we're coming up um you know like i know that one of the questions is always going to be like uh you know how did you get your first job or what was your first job like my first job in games um i worked unpaid because no one figured out that i was only a contractor so i worked in the company until they accidentally assigned me a computer and a desk and no one figured out that i wasn't actually a full-time employee for like three months and then they kind of walked up and I remember like I was so embedded doing art assets with different projects that um, they had to pull me into like a boardroom meeting and kind of say, Hey, your contract ended like three months ago. What, what, how are you still turning up to work at nine to five? Um, That's because there was like no jobs. There was no security. There was no, you know, salary based positions. Um, So we try and do a lot of things differently now so that, you know, none of the people that work, here with us have to go home kind of being worried or stressed or um like staring to their version of a like a a big giant more um i think there's a lot of companies that are trying to do the right thing nowadays especially like a lot of a lot of kind of 
single A or double A companies that are founded by people who have been through those cycles, like, you know, who've been part of massive layoffs or who've been part of um, disenfranchised kind of uh, like groups of developers that, that got shafted at the end of a release cycle. Um, yeah, I think they're doing, they're doing a lot better in terms of trying to have policies and, and conversations that means that um, junior folks coming into the industry at least have some semblance of knowing when they're being mistreated or when they're not being uh, given the equity that they need. So what are the things that you're doing at Studio Mayday to help prevent that? You know, it's, it's there's always a big hype this time of year around here in the States on the on the sports side because you have the NFL draft and the NBA draft, and they're always yeah. like, you know, they send them to rookie camp. And it's not just, you know, sports skills that they're teaching them. They teach these, you know, players, some of which came from literally nothing growing up, how to manage the multi-millions of dollars that you're going to get paid. <laughs> and I almost wish we had something like that for developers. It's like, okay, welcome to the industry. This is what you need to look out for. This yeah. is what you need to be careful of. And, you know, until then we have the show. So <laughs> what are you, what are some of the things that, that y'all have done at, at Studio Mayday to help, you know, bridge that gap for those developers? That's a good question. Um, and I totally agree with you. Like there's so many things that people don't know about or assume. Um, and that pendulum swings both both ways, right? Like sometimes developers think that, or, you know, in the industry that we have legal protections that we don't have. Um, they're, you know, they're not even there and then workplaces will give them uh, depending on the context. Um, and sometimes we get taken advantage of in ways that are illegal, but we don't know what the laws are. Um, so I think in terms of policies, we have a lot. So it's, you know, it would take too long to kind of list everything. But, um, you know, like we have flexible work hours. Uh, we have refundable sick days. Um, we've got like a roster day off slash like a, like a healthcare day. So if you've got life admin stuff that you need to do, um, once a month you can kind of just go like, message me and say, Hey, I need, I need a day off today to go take care of like family stuff. Uh, you know, go take the kids to an appointment or get a, get to go to see the doctor or I've got a moving day or something. Um, what else we got? Uh, we internally, we advertise all the pay schedules pretty openly. So everyone knows, um, how much they're getting paid, why they're getting paid that amount, what the next step is. Um, and they could extrapolate how much everyone else is getting paid based on those kind of parameters as well. So there's no, there's no kind of disparity of how well you bargain or how well you pitch yourself that is going to dictate how much money you should earn here. Um, we, Wait, so say we, everybody knows everybody else's salary. Uh, they, everyone knows how much money you could make based on your years and skills and kind of like your position. Um, so not, not by individuals, cause that'd be, you know, breaching some HR stuff there, but, uh, the internal well, handbook a studio that does that I've seen yeah, it in the news, yeah. but I think they're in France or Canada or somewhere, but they have complete and utter transparency which is fascinating to me on on that end too but anyway go ahead yeah and like and that stuff works really well it's just that um people individually might not be so comfortable um you have to keep in mind that there's a lot of like there's essentially a lot of social stuff here that means that you know healthcare is free um education can be subsidized there's there's you know pretty generous welfare conditions as well um New Zealand, unfortunately, however, has some pretty dodgy laws when it comes to um, screen industries uh, because of it's called the Hobbit law. So it basically means that, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not even kidding, right? This thing is a bane on our industry over here at the moment. Um, so Peter Jackson basically said, I'm not going to film the Hobbit because it's too expensive. So the government said, all right, how about we, you know, we pass this exemption, which, um, it would enable us to hire a contractor game developer for an indefinite amount of time, have no benefits, no overtime, um, no, like we don't have to pay their kind of, uh, what's called Kiwi Saver, like their, their kind of savings account. Um, and that kind of stuff's pretty bad. So we've rolled back on a lot of those things. Um, people have, you know, they, they have the, the salary and then time and a half, uh, 
um, for overtime or times two if they will have to work weekends, which means that we we can't call people up to do crunch time uh, over weekends because it's so expensive to do that. Uh, it yes, yeah, so there's a lot of stuff. Um, what else is there? All right, I look, want we don't double do... time for weekends. <laughs> yeah, we all do, right? Like I, I've worked a lot of weekends in my life, so I, I don't want anyone coming into the office unless they know that they're getting paid a crap load of money to do that. Um, and things have been things have been working well in that regard. Um, the even at, at like our stressful kind of deliverable periods, um, I know that the feedback that we had internally at the office was everyone kind of said that was stressful, but it was still it was still fair. Like it still felt good that the morale was high. Everyone was kind of feeling good, even though that they were working at a very rapid pace. So they try and get you know the work done within the eight hours of the day, as opposed to knowing that they're going to have to you know spend twelve hours for for weeks on end. And I think we we tend to see much better working conditions in indie teams than we do in you know these factories. Like uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what is the the Tiburon down in Florida? You know they they know hell or high water. They're shipping a Madden game in August. You know yeah. that that and if that means you're working 12, 16 hours a day for months on end, that's kind of what it means. And you know that's always the part of me when I go and and speak to middle school, high school, even college kids, and they're like, "Oh, I would love to have a job, you know, working on Madden." And I'm just like, <laughs> "Oh shit, have no idea." I one one kid. When it told me how bad he wanted to be a game tester. And I said, what do you think a game tester is? And he's like, well, you get to play games all day. And I said, well, let me clarify. You need to go over to that wall, slam your face into the concrete for, you know, seven or eight hours and then take you a 15, 20 minute break and then go back and do it again. You know, yeah. because that's a lot of what testing is at these big, big companies. I said, you're not going to be sitting there and playing, you know, franchise mode in Madden for four seasons in a row. You're going to be sitting there running the same play 500 times to make sure that, you know, it doesn't break, you know? So it, it's, I love that there are, you know, studios out there that are taking the effort to say, okay, listen, we know this isn't being done right in many parts of the industry, but we're going to, you know, fix it as best we can on our side. Um, yeah. That's, that's awesome. I congratulate you on that part. Um, I didn't see we've already gone on such a tangent. I have to go back and look at my notes now. So when you're, you know, in that early stage of, you know, you're still working another job, you're wanting to put your, your own team together and do your own game. You're going to hit those low points. Like we talked about, but when is the best time to step back and say, okay, is this something that is worthwhile long-term or do I just need to, you know, throw in the towel for a little bit? You know, is it, what's the point that you remember or, you know, that you recommend for, for anyone? Is it, is it that misery point that you, you brought up earlier or is there something else that, you know, should work as a trigger basically? That's a good question. Um, there's two good examples I can think of. There's a misery point, right? Like the misery point is something that can come even when you're working in like a games company or if you're working that that kind of ideal job. Um, that can always happen. And you should always seek to try and remedy, you know, the situation if um, if you can, if you, if you hate going to work in the morning. Like it's a huge privilege, I think, for someone to actually enjoy waking up to go to work so that they can, you know, provide shelter and feed themselves and save up money to feed their family. Like that's, that's something that's not lost on us. Um, but before that, like I used to run a company called, um, opaque space. And I left that as, as the kind of director because, um, we were building military products and that's not something that was making me happy. Um, like one of the things that I left out in the forum, uh, sorry, in that thread on Twitter, for example, was the fact that, you know, my first company, I was actually getting to a very um, a very prominent kind of role as an XR kind of um, expert, I guess, for 
all sorts of weird places, you know, like the US military or the Air Force specifically, all the way to um, the Navy in New Zealand. And we had, um, we're lining up a couple of contracts. We'd already executed a couple of contracts. Um, and it was, it was this whole new life was emerging where um, that was not what I wanted to do at all. Again, like probably a really stupid decision um, in terms of like hindsight, because there was some, you know those those military things can be quite lucrative, but it's just not what I wanted to do. Um, so when the idea came up of um, I don't enjoy doing this anymore at all, uh, I kind of need to need to go back to games. Um, I just wanted to pursue that. So I had a lot of good mentors at the time who were people who run their own studios who kind of gave some good advice, but um, ultimately they're like it was miserable having to contribute to an ecosystem um that was like almost surreal at this stage like I i've been to arms shows where they've got like you know rifle stands with um anti-material rifles that are pointed out of the exhibition kind of center looking out to a park across the river and i thought like wow what a way to sell a gun like you know here you can demo this the scope by looking at like families having picnics and stuff like it was getting weird. Um, I didn't know that Saab, for example, makes anti-tank weapons. They do. So they make cars and uh, a whole line of AT, AT stuff. Um, uh, I, and, and the schedule was crazy. Like, I was, I was flying all over the place. Um, and then, yeah, I basically, I, I think I, I spoke to, like, the board of directors from my parent company and just said, I'm, I'm just, I'm resigning. I'm done. I'm not going to do this. Um, like I think I had one one arms show too many um, where I was speaking about XR training that I kind of went no I'm I'm done with this like this is not this is not the future I wanted um, the thing that happened in bouncing though I don't even I wouldn't even call that like misery or anything it's more like um, staring into like this abyss of of nothingness as long as you're not you don't feel like you're actually contributing to the thing that the journey that you want to have. Um, it just feels like repetitive. Um, and I think anyone who does like shift work to try and make ends meet will probably have a very similar story um, in that, you know, it just feels like every day is the exact same day over and over again. And you feel like you're stuck in this like tiny bubble of an ecosystem and the rest of the world is just moving on. Um, that's like a whole new level of, uh, I think, misery or desperation. Um, and I wouldn't really wish that on anyone. So we try and help people find jobs as much as we can um it's like you know we spent hours if not weeks uh for the mayday um site to have like a whole you know 30 page or maybe maybe less than i cut it down uh like hiring tips for students and juniors like you know this is the stuff you can do this is the like resources you can read these are like twitter threads that people have made about how to structure your resume etc because i wouldn't wish that on any any kind of person looking to break in so wait, is that on the studio? Is that on the site now? Yeah, yeah, it should be. Um, unless ah, it should be, it should be on there. Let me have a look. Um, I'll um, I'll find that. And we'll we'll post it up here and put it in the put it in the links as well. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, studiomayday.nz. Should be just about. Uh, I think it's on the careers careers side. Yeah. Application tips for job success. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. Um, yeah, so we did, we got really got good feedback from people um, in regards to that. But that 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 entire thing and everything that we do as a studio comes from that 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 foundation of remembering, you know, how we broke into the industry and remembering what it was like before then, um, and the, and the difficulties and challenges and stuff. That's awesome. So. You talked about you know how you found your own pace and and you would you would look at other people and yeah. they were you know quote unquote ahead of you in the industry and and they were already making great things. How did you go about finding that pace on your own? Oh, I think there's um I don't know I think there's some like for myself anyway looking back there's always going to be some rose tinted glasses because this survivorship bias, you know, like things worked out so that it's a happy story. Um, <laughs> but I think that 
the same type of like feeling is prevalent in anyone who's making content or anyone who's trying to 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 set themselves up to complete a goal in that they look at the people around them who are you know successful or they're accomplishing things uh, and we have so many metrics for things nowadays that you can actually like tangibly see the numbers of this person's doing better than me at what I want to do um, whether that's in like you know followers or its views or its game sales or its awards um, I think my own pace was dictated by the idea of once I can actually do something on games and pay my rent, that's a great pace for me. That's something that, like, that, that to me was just like the life dream, you know. A lot of people have these things of like, I want, you know, they want to be creative directors, they want to build their own, you know, like MMO game someday. I just wanted to be able to pay my rent and save money by working on computer games. That, that was the whole goal. I don't have like a dream game or something that I wanted to build. It was just, I want to, I want to be working in the games industry. Um, so that to me, that pace was literally someone has to give me some money to do this shit at some point. Like someone's going to, someone's going to cover my grocery bills at some point. I, I agree. I had a, um, a venture back, you know, CEO once try to sell me on their product by telling me how much money I was going to make you know, helping them. And I said, that's not, you know, that's not what motivates me, you know, and, yeah. and it's getting up and, and very much the same thing. It's just like, you know, I want to make sure that the, my family's taken care of and paid for, but aside from that, I want to make sure I don't dread coming to work every morning and that yeah. I am enjoying this and we're helping people at the same time we're running a company. And so, you know, he said, Oh, so you're not looking he says, your goal isn't to be wealthy. It's to be content. And I was like, yeah, pretty much, you know, it, yeah. it, that, that word sounds like you're kind of sacrificing, but you're not, I mean, that's, it, it isn't worth it to be, you know, never seeing your family and working these 12 hour, 15 hour days, just so you can make a couple extra thousand dollars, unless you are, absolutely ready to give that up, you know, in a year or two before you lose touch with your family and, you know, go and, and spend that money. But it's, I agree, you know, to answer my own question a little while back, it is to me that point when it's not worth doing anymore is when you don't enjoy it. When I mean, you don't have to come into the office bouncing and smiling every morning, God knows I don't, but that's usually a factor of how much coffee I've had more than anything else. <laughs> it's, it's a matter of, you know, am I enjoying what I'm doing? You know, I like doing, you know, in your case, you know, I like working on the VR side, but I don't really like making weapon systems. You know, yeah. I want to, you know, use this for something, for something better. So yeah, that, that's, um, that, that's yeah. a point there. Um, one of the lines that you that I, I pulled out of your your Twitter thread was, "Don't let people tell you opportunities knock once, because you're the one who built the door for them to knock on, and there will be more." So, what should teams be doing to make sure they're constantly rebuilding that door? Because I, I agree with that statement one hundred and fifty percent. You know, it's how what do they need to be doing to make sure there's always a door there for someone to knock on. It's a good question. So, um, last year, um, I I was flown to Prague for you know Wargaming has something called 4C, which is like their um, developer conference. Like they're such a big company now, I guess that they can actually like pull in developers from around the world to speak about like different topics. And the topic that I spoke about at, at that conference was about um, how to turn a sinking ship into su into a submarine. Um, cause that's what happened. Like we were in the, in the other, um, previous studio, um, we we're working on developing VR content to help with, you know, research into astronaut training. Um, we we're doing some stuff with the ESA and, um, obviously we had a bit of a background with NASA by that stage already. Um, but it wasn't like, it wasn't paying the bills. Like it, it was, it was still really difficult for us to be able to be a service studio or a content studio. Um, so we pivoted to developing our own IP um, based on the stuff that we had built internally. But the big lesson there was that 
you, you as long as you have the tools of like tools available to you whether that's yourself or a team or having a studio uh, even just a tiny bit of runway um you can always take stock of what you have and try to find opportunities in you know a market demand that's not being met um like could be publisher opportunities could be even reaching out to your contacts or your networks to say we have a full you know full team ready to go um who's got a license for us or uh even this year for example there is probably dozens of studios around the world that have been signed up to really really lucrative kind of um content deals because the 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 money base right now is starved for for game development especially people who can deliver so um knowing the ecosystem especially the you know what's on the horizon what's coming past that for us vr was quite hot at the time but we got in just a little bit later than the 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 honeymoon period of of investment spending um so i think even in your personal life like looking at the skills that you have and trying to find ways to develop those skills to create opportunities is something that is um that is it's difficult to do that but it's not impossible um and it can be as simple as you know if you feel like you're a charismatic person doing communications or pr uh or if you're feeling like you know you you've got some art skills you know fan arts doing modding um anything that you can do to try and build at least a portal that someone can can email you and say hey that was really cool um you know how would you like to help us with x and y uh or if you're a business or if you're a a studio um looking at any pivots that you can do like turning your tools into ip um any ideas that you have that you can pitch to publishers knowing you know which financiers are looking for getting money out into the ecosystem um or you know which platforms are looking for looking for deals essentially like those are all really great kind of methods that people can employ um and to scale as well and one of the important things that Ed Deal uh Dilly brought up when he was on was you know he tells his clients even if you're looking for contract work always have an original pitch that you're shopping you know 100%. it's it's extremely important you know and there's tools i mean i, I agree learning the business side the biz dev side of the industry is not easy and it's not inherent for a lot of people especially if you're a engineer or a designer Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you're not that business person to start with, but you know, there's a lot of things out there between uh, CRMs. It's like we use nutshell to track everything internally, but you can even do it in a spreadsheet. Yeah. But you know, we always make sure we check in with, you know, people every three months, you know, and, and so because things change in this industry extremely fast. And so it's very important to always have your name out there because you don't know, you just hit somebody you know, at the right time and a deal happens, you know, what Absolutely. We get a lot. And, you know, so one of the things that my firm does is help developers and publishers set up meetings and find people to meet with that, you know, trade shows, which is part of what has spawned our own event that we do. Um, one of the things I'll come back and I'll, I'll be talking to the same developer like the next year at the show, and I had one say, okay, I want you to help us get meetings this year, but you know, we don't want any meetings with somebody we met with last year. We're already talking to them. And I said, okay, so when was the last time you talked to them? And they're like, well, last year at GDC. I'm like, that's not how it works. <laughs> like, no, it's not. You have to stay in constant contact because that's how you stay top of mind with, you know, especially like publishers. If, if you're, if you're out there looking for contract or work for hire things that way, you know, they're not going to remember somebody they spoke with six months or a year ago, but if you're, you know, talking to them, giving them an update on what you're doing, and then, you know, five or six weeks later, they have an opportunity pop up, you're going to be one of the first studios that comes to mind, you know. Exactly them. right. And so it is one, you know, I agree. It, it's not something that's inherent, but it's something that developers can, can learn and, <clears throat> you know, they can find some tools that make it a whole lot easier on you. In, in so the meantime, we, we so. got a question from Chocolate Rain. Um, question: Biggest regret slash mistake in the industry? Oh yeah, um, 
I think my honestly my biggest regret is I spent um a lot of time in my first kind of year running a like a team or a studio um traveling and I don't remember like a lot of it. I burnt out so hard that um I was told or I remember now that I've been to Tokyo and Vancouver, for example, I have no idea that like, I don't remember, remember being in those cities in the slightest. Um, if it wasn't for like, you know, photos of me being there, I, I would not be able to tell you what I did in Japan. Um, yeah, it was massive, massive burnout. I, I hit it so hard that, um, and so much stress, like self-imposed stress. Um, I think that's always going to be like a huge regret that I should have never uh, gone from being, um, a pretty young developer, like three years in the industry, um, or four years, I think, at that stage, to to being to operating um, with like a, a sense of arrogance. I think of how easy it would be to do business development and team management um, and and company management and all these other like really difficult things that are all completely um, self enclosed jobs as well as directing a directing production and a game and, you know, trying to get new contracts at the same time, it was just really painful. Like it was so, um, it was so harsh and I, and I, and I would advise everyone to treat, um, if they run their own company, if they run their own team, if they're looking to do those things that they, they treat the business development side and the studio management side of those things as completely like, 100% full-time jobs in themselves. They're really difficult to take on. Um, yeah, it was big, solid crash and burn on that one. Like, it took me months to kind of get over the burnout from that. So that's a perfect segue into me plugging our event. So th I did the very same thing. I mean, I've been doing this on the business side for a, mm -hmm. two decades now, and so I've burned out several times. I'm on my, I'm on my third or fourth burnout at this point. But... <laughs> Two, two years ago, I, I did the same thing. I was I was traveling constantly. I didn't get time at home, you know, to spend with my family. And when you travel, no matter how good our technology is, you always end up getting behind on things. And then you have to yep. catch up. And then, you know, you're getting ready for the next show. And so that's the reason, you know, I sat down last year and I said, I'm not traveling at all. And I didn't. I didn't go to a single show anywhere and I reached out to Indy and we started this show. I was like, I'm going to take the money I normally spend on travel and we're going to do a show to help, you know, teach people about, you know, game to, I mean, the business side of games. And then early this year, we started, you know, reaching out to developers and saying, okay, what do you want to get out of, you know, these events like GDC, you know, where do you feel like you need the most help? And it's the business part. I mean, it's it's the travel part. You know, it's so expensive to go, especially like from where you are up to, yeah. you know, San Francisco to, to go to GDC. And so if you go to IndieGame.Business, there's the page for our online events that we do. And so, you know, we sit down and, and we partnered up with me to match and you can go and find the people that you need to meet with and you don't have to know them in the first place. You know, it takes the cold call out of the whole thing. There's a directory of who's going to be at the show, what they're looking for. You find the ones that make sense. You send them a message. And when it's time to do the meetings, which is gonna, the next one is July 17th and 18th, you just do a video call. And, and it's that simple. And so you, you can do a lot of the stuff that you do at a conference when it comes to networking and business development, just simply through, you know, from your own home or office. And so, you know, I agree. It's, it's, you can spend every week on the road somewhere in this industry. There's a show going on somewhere, yeah. but it's not always, you know, the best use of, of time and money and sanity. Can't agree with that enough. It's uh, it's very like if 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 you're not getting subsidized in some way, those those conferences can can really um make a dent. Like it was um for me, you know, I, I was I generally aim to speak at every conference that I went to, so I could get myself either a free ticket or um. <laughs> Or we uh, we always had like a booth set up. Um, the Australian government was quite aggressive about 
um, providing funding for, for travel, uh, for business development, because it's an export product. Um, and like when we started hovering into like the, the military defense kind of industries, um, yeah, they, they, they were happy to send us on whatever they could find. Um, but it's just like business development in itself um, is an extremely stressful and constantly demanding job to do. It never ends. There's no end point for BizDev. Um, for us, like we're, our BizDev side is kind of comfortable now only because we have such a long-term project. Like, you know, we don't have to worry about, um, like we can't scale at the moment because we're out of office space at, at this point. But um, next year, the like the cycle will start again. We'll have to be back out on the road, you know, talking about the next deal, the next game, the next kind of production cycle. Um, yeah, it's it's hard. You, when people don't have the right framework or skills, like they do with you know programming or or art or modeling, animation, that kind of stuff. Um, you don't you don't learn how to do business development for games at at a university at the moment or like a, a course. Yeah, you literally don't because nobody teaches that. No, of course we were not. talking about that on Twitter this morning with um with, with Indie Gamer Chick and another studio out in, in Colorado. It's you know, one of the biggest issues is these universities will go out and they'll tell, you know, a kid, it's like, yeah, come pay us a bunch of money and in two or four years down the road you'll have a game design degree. But that that does you no good if you don't yeah. understand the basics of you know, this is how you do a budget. This is how you, you know, plan to go and find a publisher. And this is how you do it. And they don't teach, they literally don't teach the business side of it, you know, anywhere. So um, along those lines then, you know, for, for people who are, you know, in that spot that you were in 14, 15 years ago, what's the best, best path that you see to becoming an indie developer? Wait, I'm just doing some maths in my head. Um, 12 years ago. 12. It has to be 12, okay. yeah. There, there, there was an overlap when I was working in games and I was working in bouncing. Um, they did, because I was on a very, very crap salary when I was first working as a junior in games. Um, so I had to continue working at nights um, just to be able to, like, make rent and everything like that. Um, yeah, so what would be the best path would be um it's actually like and i hate to say this but it's it's an easy answer to that question it's just people need to just build games um <laughs> i always i always like the one thing that i always did which um and and this is something that you know i'll always say it to people like your life circumstances might be different you may not have the the, the money the time you may have people in your life that need help and support from you. So you may not have the resources to, to build games uh, or to learn new skills. That's fine, but it never stops you from uh, adapting to that condition. Like, you know, you could build something on paper, you could build something in a notepad. Like I've got, um, I've got notebooks of just weird game ideas that I'll write down all the time. And when people say that ideas are cheap, it's because well, it's because they've never patented an idea or they've never got money for pitching an idea, but it's also that, um, like, they can be quite valuable and they help exercise your, your mind as well. Um, also, I think that building games, like, we were, we were game jamming a lot um, a long time ago now, and it it really helps you get into the cycle of, you know, you plan, you build, you let go of your fear, um, a lot of indies, when they're especially juniors, will treat their game ideas as if they're going to be, um, you know, the next indie rock star. Um, and they stop looking at their games as being either, you know, like just content, uh, whether it's commercial or expressive. It's, you know, it depends on the, on the developer, but it's things that you plan and build and then you release out into the wild and then you move on, you build a new one. There's no magnopus that someone's going to build off their first thing. And any of the developers that have done that um, are statistically, you know, just lightning in a bottle at that stage. Um, so the best thing that people can do is just to build really, really quick disposable games, but at least finish them, uh, you know, have your menus, your levels, your audio plugged in, uh, even a credit screen, um, core gameplay loops, uh, at least do a little bit of play testing, 
and a little like website on each for it and then move on to the next one and then keep doing that it's very unlikely for someone doing that to not eventually get picked up by a studio because it just makes the best type of junior that you can hire yeah someone that has the drive and has actually completed a game because there's yeah, a lot of game rare. developers that have never actually completed a game Yep, mm-hmm. it's it's one of the most understated yet most important parts of not only getting a job but getting publishing deals, getting bank loans. You know, there's a lot of you know knowledge there that people don't really like. Even if you're going to the bank and saying, "Hey, look, I want a traditional loan for my game." One, congratulations that you found a bank that would even let you, <laughs> you say wow. that. <laughs> so, so we got but, a question from Nightwolf. Would making your own itch slash Steam games or publish that could take weeks, months, years, etc., or joining game jams be better use of your time to get into the industry or at least have a resume? Oh, yeah. Help both of them. Um, and I say this, right, because we put our money where our mouth is. Um, so at Mayday, we have no minimum qualifications and no minimum years. We look at the games that people have made or their body of work. Um, and, like, that's, that, that, that meant that we had a lot of applications, but um, we, we just looked at people's games. That's all it was. Um, and I've, uh, I would recommend um, a game a week. That'd be, that's really good. Like, pair up with someone, um, take turns designing or, you know, if you're a programmer and the other person's an artist, take turns on being the designer. Um, if you're three people, take turns on being the producer or designer. Um, and essentially, just start creating a backlog. Um, there was pretty much every single person that we hired um, in our company right now is someone who's hired, like who's made their own game. Um, and I have no idea who has a degree and who doesn't have a degree. Um, and yeah, like I personally hired every one of them and I, I could not tell you the minimum years or the, 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 the degrees of any of those people at this point. Like it's just not relevant when we can look at their work and, and look at their skill set um, and play it and understand where they're coming from um, because it's so easy to get, get a piece of paper that says, congratulations, you know, you've completed this course, but what you've produced and what you've made speaks like volumes in comparison. All right. So this time, this conversation we're having is timely for a whole new reason. Now, uh, this article just dropped this morning. Another article about the human cost of game development on this time on call of duty, black ops four. From Treyarch, right. yeah, mm-hmm. and I'm not even going to read it right now because one, it's probably long, and, and two, uh, it probably says the same thing that we see every single time one of these you know articles comes out. It's we'll do better next time. No, you won't. It's just, <laughs> I mean, no, you won't. This, for for people who have been in the industry for even three years. None of this comes as a surprise. People that are like jaw dropping, like I can't believe it happens. Then you ain't been around long enough, you know, because this is normal. It shouldn't be, but it is. So um, that completely derailed me from the next question I had. <laughs> okay, all right, game jams. We've seen them grow in popularity over the last five, ten years. Mm-hmm. Explain why those are important. Well. Um... Restraints are good in production, um, and I think that restraints, uh, restraints, sorry, uh, in terms of time and managing people and having a focused goal um, is really good. And the game jam kind of ecosystem is currently undergoing a lot of like strong debate and discourse um, around kind of sustainable jamming. So the idea of like you know caffeinated um overnight kind of development teams crunching away that stuff is just it doesn't mean that the team is good they're not going to make a good game out of that um it is now that people are trying to say all right like we've got two work days to jam out like a product um there's a lot of teams i think that are getting much better with that um and 
there, it, it's something that that teaches people a good discipline about prototyping um, and proof of concepts. So, a lot of people that have been through the publisher cycle will tell you that um, a prototype is worth its weight in gold uh, more than a pitch deck is. And obviously, like you know, a game that's a demo stage or a game that's um, that's pretty much close to completion, they're very likely to get signed up by someone. But being able to show a prototype, even if it's just placeholder assets, is is always a really, really good skill for a team to 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 have. Um, and we've had uh, some great IP get created from game jams. Um, the one that comes to mind is Super Hot, right? Like that's that's the the one of the big kind of pinnacles of of a game jam product that ended up becoming you know a multi million dollar kind of uh, intellectual property. Um, they have thirty. 40 developers now in Poland um, in a city called Wush. Uh, um, and I visited them as well. And it's weird seeing the impact of having the city that had like, you know, giant murals and stuff like that. All of it is from like literally a team sat down for a game jam and just said, like, you know, what can we, what can we build um, in two days? And boom, you know, you've got, you've got 40 people employed uh, and you've got probably one of the, the highest selling VR games of all time now as well. Yeah. That that game has done extremely well and, and made folks plenty of money. Um, yes, right, so we we've got a question from Broad Strokes. He says, "Let's say you have an LLC focused on the product itself, presented at conventions, do a pitch deck, prototype working, prototype yep. is working, but it's not yep. done, and you need capital to finish it in a realistic time frame." He says, "Our experience from going through publishers has been come back when it's done." But various smaller investors have told us to hit impact investors or startup investors. In short, how do you find non-game investors and get them involved? What sort of world do you need to look into or enter to get that foot in the door? That's a good question. Um, Publishers saying come back when it's done in this current ecosystem um, speaks more about the publishers than about their attempts. it's not like it's it's not always common for public pubs to be like you know ah oh, great game let us know when 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 you want to when you want it like when you're ready to to kind of sign it up um, because the power dynamic is really like shifted at that point as well um, from the conversations that we've had previously and we're always like shopping different ideas around. Um, there's like two stages. One is that if they really like an idea, they'll probably fund you at a very early level because the um, your pedigree and the idea have merit. Um, but if you're too high of a risk, they may wait to see if the game is matured more. Um, but a publisher saying come back when it's done, it's really strange because they don't like. There's no power there. There's no. There's no. There's no like leverage that that someone would have in that in that circumstance because you can shop it to. Like you can go on Twitter and say, our game's done, we need a publisher, and you'll probably get like 40 different people DMing saying, hey, you know, we'll market it, we'll do it, et cetera. Because it costs them very little comparatively to funding the production cycle. Um, that, that's an interesting concept. Uh, in terms of non-games funding, um, it's very region-specific uh, because the ecosystems can be quite different. Um, our experience in Australia or ANZ, the Australian New Zealand kind of environment has been that investors tend to be quite skittish uh, and risk adverse. Um, but if you look at Europe, for example, the investment ecosystem there is is much, much more aggressive of, around games funding. Um, I think it was, I think it was um, Angry Birds, no, Clash of Clans um, that received, received, you know, millions of euros in funding from a bank. Um, and I think it was the same same thing for for Angry Birds as well. Like, there is this idea that you can shop uh, your game or your intellectual property around for for bank or institutional funding if you're in the right location or the right country. Um, if you're in ANZ, you're not going to get that opportunity. If you're in the US, it's probably going to be really difficult to do that. Um, and in terms of any startup capital funding. Um, it depends on what you're building. If it's just the game, I think it's always doable, um, especially free-to-play free games or games as a service models have been quite successful in the past. But um, I'd imagine that the current ecosystem is going to be a little bit 
apprehensive because they're waiting to see what um, the next generation of games as a service or streaming games kind of ecosystems will do. You know, there's no point funding um, a free-to-play game when you're worried that everyone's going to be switching to, you know, games as a Netflix in two, three years' time. I don't know if that answers the question, but it's it's pretty early here at the moment. Uh, so, you know, I gave it a shot. No, I mean, that's, that's so my first, I mean, I agree. If Publishers are always going to want to see it when it's done. It eliminates the risk, you know, that they yeah. have. And so I see a lot of teams come back from conferences, you know, E3s or GDCs, and they're like, we had so much interest in our game. And I'm like, that's awesome. Tell me how that works out two weeks from now, you know, because a publisher is always going to tell you that that they like what they see, they want to see more. That's just yeah. instinct. And it's because they don't want to be that company that, you know, has to turn around in, in two years and go, yeah, uh, we had a chance to sign, you know, Angry Birds and we didn't. And so, yeah, we kind of screwed up there. They're always going to want to see more. My first question is, you know, to broad strokes would be, how many publishers did you go to? You know, did you go to 5, 10, 20, 50, 100? I mean, we track over 600 publishers globally. You know, there's a lot of publishers out there. Mm -hmm. um, and if you want that list, we actually have it for you. Go to our... Uh, go to our website, the powellgroupconsulting.com, and a, a handy dandy little pop up will pop up on the screen and say, Hey, do you want a list of 500 plus publishers? Put your email in there and it'll send you a list. But, you know, you, I always recommend going, if you have to get money, the publisher route before the investor route. And it's an umbrella statement for me because, like Emory said, it's very regional. You know, companies in Canada have access to, you know, regional funding and the Canadian um, media fund, the CMF. Companies yeah. in the U.S. don't. You know, there's, depending on where you are, your options for funding vary. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, in Germany, you can go and put together a pitch and get a fund set up just like you're doing a a, a movie, but, you know, it's for a game. And so... It's always going to vary, but, you know, when I talk to developers and they're like, we shopped it to publishers, but no one was interested, you know, I always want to know how many you shopped it to, because there's chances are there are more. And if you've got that good demo, that good proof of concept, you know, you can find a publisher. It's just, it might take a lot of work, but, you know, it, there are, they are out there. Oh, it takes tremendous amounts of work. Like... I know that for us, um, it took a long time. It took six months to get something signed. Um, and <laughs> at, like in, on our deck, um, I know six months doesn't sound long, but it's like the, the, we did have advantage of pedigree. Like, um, because I, like I had work, I, I had, uh, in for my personal thing anyway, was that, um, I had won the the studio of the year in Australia, the Australian industry and the game of the year on the same year. Uh, Jay from Epic was a guy who gave me the award for it. And um, Josh was also like, you know, an internationally acclaimed indie game developer. Um, so even under those circumstances, I think that we would have conversations with probably like 20, 30, at least pubs, um, who pr just say the same thing. It doesn't cost them anything to say, I like it, let's see it when there's a prototype, or, you know, I like it, bring it to me um, in a couple of months when you've worked on it a little bit more because they don't have to put any money in. Um, people can say they like stuff all they want because there's no commitment there. So the best type of advice I've always been given is that um, when you, if you want to gauge how real someone is with that kind of discussion, you have to time box it and say, um, you know, if you like it, we're looking to sign in the next three months or the next six months or the next eight months. Um, so we, you know, we need we need to we need to kind of put that um, time box in place, and then you'll find out very quickly how much someone goes from I like it to it's just not what we're looking for. It's not a part of our portfolio. They'll, they'll give you proper reasons for it very quickly. Um, 
because they're the same as anyone else. Like they need to keep a Rolodex of, and for those of you that don't know what a Rolodex is, they need to keep like a contact <laughs> list of of um of games, and they keep progress uh, like updates on this stuff. Like they have account managers who'll email uh, game dev teams all the time and say, "Hey, what are you up to? You know, I'm going to be in town. I want to check out what, what you're doing, or has there been any progress in the game? Because they're always looking to sign things up on a cycle." It's it's an old timey spreadsheet. That, that's old timey spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You you sometimes find them with these things called business cards. Um <laughs> all right. Oh yeah, business cards. We're, huh. we're coming up and, and we've already passed our hour and so that means it's probably roughly five AM your time over it there. It is, yep. In, in New Zealand. So I'm gonna cut it short, you know. It, if you've got questions, throw them up right now. Um, Broadstroke says, we're in the U.S. The game we're working on is a Switch title, currently working on the device, real-time, full vertical slice. It's been a back, big back and forth, as you mentioned, and show us more. Yeah. Going to GDC, various smaller conventions locally on the East Coast of the U.S. We've been featured by Epic on various occasions, so we're trying to find the right route. It's uh, the last two years of development going to focus on GDCs. Browser, uh, seriously, go to our Discord, if you're not already on our Discord, and send me a message. Um, happy to you know see what we can do to help, uh, all that kind of good stuff, too. Um, if anyone else has got any questions for, for Emre, pop them up let us know um in the meantime i will say we do actually have the podcast up running so go to anchor.fm and slash indie game business and you have you'll a find in there for that this exclamation mark podcast no sorry i couldn't hear i couldn't hear you over me oh he said oh uh, you do you got exclamation mark podcast okay yeah there we go look at that i don't even remember doing that that's just you know awesome um you can go there, find it. We'll get this interview up just as soon as humanly possible. Uh, if you want to find out more about the business networking event that we talked about, just go to indiegame.business and it'll have all the info and all the wonderful things that people who have attended have said. And of course, links to get tickets and, and that sort of stuff. So um, that's coming up July 17th and 18th. Mm-hmm. We're trying to do them every three months. So, you know, we'll keep you posted on that. Uh, but with that, I don't see anything popping up. Emery, dude, thank you so much for yeah, thanks you know, for getting up so, so yeah. early, doing this, and for doing it at the hour that you did it. <laughs> it's okay. I'm always happy to chat when it comes to uh, game dev biz stuff. So yeah, no, it's always a pleasure. Well, I hope you'll stick around. You know, the <clears throat> Discord for you know whenever and be certain to i mean share all the stuff you know any news that you've got that sort of stuff and totally yeah man um awesome you got anything else indy no i'm good thank you so much for coming on all right well get a little bit of sleep before he goes to work (laughs) (laughs) all right thanks thanks, everybody all right y'all take care Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at IndieGame.Business.